Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. So I'm just going to ask a question. Um, how many Carolina fans are here only because you made a promise yesterday to God? I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> That's what it takes to get you to church. That, that works. Um, <laughs> some of you, I really believe that some of you today are going to make life-changing decisions. And Satan doesn't like it, and he works against it. First service, we uh, had a, a young man to pray to receive Christ. Second service, right at the beginning of the service, all of our uh, video monitoring, all of our song, everything went out. They did everything trying to start it back up. didn't work. We had two people to get saved in that service. So I don't know what's going to happen in this service, but whenever God's up to something, we can absolutely trust him. And uh, so I'm thankful. So maybe some of you, you're here right now, and you're about to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that you weren't thinking about having today. And I, I hope that you'll be open to what God's Spirit wants to say to you today. You know, we're, we're going to be talking about, um, we've been talking about miracles. And today we're talking about this miracle that's just kind of stuck in just seven verses in 2 Kings. And, and by comparison to the other miracles we've been doing, this seems like a small, insignificant miracle. And, and it's kind of like, uh, what, why is this even in the Bible? You know, by comparison, this is not a big thing. And uh, so, but this deals with the prophet named Elisha. Elijah, he's the guy that went up into the fiery chariot up into heaven. And God told Elijah that Elisha is going to be your replacement. And so he blessed Elisha and passed the mantle on to him. And it was Elisha that was standing there when God took him to heaven without physically dying. That only happened to two people, Enoch and Elijah. And, and Elisha is the only person that got to personally witness that. Imagine being an eyewitness to that. And, and nobody was there when Enoch w went to heaven. Uh, we just know about it because it's in the scripture. But uh, Elijah, there was a witness. And, and so imagine this guy, uh, what he experienced. Now, he and Elijah were totally different. Elijah was like the prophet. He was very out. He was out there. His, his ministry was very uh, out there. I mean, he was very vocal and, and I mean, amazing thing. He would call down fire and call down rain. And, but Elisha, he was the quiet one and he was more introverted and, uh, he, he had a more quiet type ministry. So they they were very different, but they both were God's man for the time. And they were both used by God in a mighty way. So right out, right out of the bat, the first lesson I'm learning is God wants to use me just like I am. God wants you to be just who you are. 
He doesn't need you to be someone else. He doesn't need you to try to emulate someone else. You just be true to who you are. You're wired a certain way. You have a certain personality. You have certain likes and dislikes. Be, be true to who the person you are, whether you're an extrovert or introvert. Now, I'm not saying we all have sin nature, so I'm not saying be true to your sin nature. <laughs> I'm not giving you permission. Well, you know, my sin nature really enjoys this stuff, and the pastor told me to be true to who I am. That, that, uh, you, you're going to misuse what I just said, and uh, I can hear some thinking going on. So that's, not, that's why I'm talking about who God created you to be. So some of you, you just need to stop trying to be like other people. You just need to be you, who God has created you to be. Not who other people think you should be. You know, if you, if you spend your life trying to be what you think other people want you to be, that is such a dead-end street. And here's the reality. You're you're sitting there going, well, it's not who I think I am that makes me who I am. And it's not what you think I am that makes me who I am. It's what I think that you think that makes me what I am. And that, that just doesn't work. You need to be true to who God's made you to be. God used Elijah, the outgoing one, and Elisha, the quiet one, and did amazing things through their ministry. God's the one that wired you the way that you are. He gave you that temperament, that personality, that passion. Be true to that person. So here are these two guys, very, very different. And Elisha now is on the scene. And... Um, In 2 Kings, I'm just going to read the story of what happened, and then we're going to draw from it. We're we're going to have to really be careful when you, you I mean, this is just seven verses about this one story, and then that's it. There's nothing else, and and we wonder, why is this even here? And, you know, this seems like such a small miracle, especially compared to other miracles, but yet it's still a miracle, and it's not here by accident. Nothing is in Scripture by accident, and everything in Scripture is to teach us to learn from it. And so there are things that we're going to learn, but we got to be careful not to over-spiritualize something and, and try to force the scripture to say something it's really not saying. So let's just read the story. One day, the group of prophets, um, you could call them, let's call them seminary students, because that's what they were doing. And Elisha had a school to teach these students. So it was a group of seminary students, they came to Elisha and told him, as you can see, this place where we meet with you is too small. So Elisha had a training center and, and he was that, um, he was that kind of teacher that was one-on-one with people. You know, Elijah did the big things, but Elisha, he was more of that one-on-one kind of guy, and, and students loved him. He was that teacher that students were drawn to, and he would give them a lot of personal attention, and they just loved him, and the school consequently was growing, and they ran out of space. And, and so they said, Let, let's go down to the Jordan River 
where there are plenty of logs, and there we can build a new place for us to meet. Well, all right, Elijah said, go ahead. Good idea. That's great. You got my blessing. And, And then this tells you how they feel about him. Please come with us. And he said, I will. I mean, they just liked being with him. He was that kind of person. He invested in them. You know, when I went to seminary, um, I was 32 years old. We were married, had two kids. And so it was going to be a big deal, uprooting the family, moving. And, and I had a choice. Uh, if I was going to a Baptist school, we had six Baptist seminaries. So I, I had to decide, how am I going to decide? <laughs> You know, I had to make that decision first. How am I I going to pick a school? And and I decided that the most important criteria was who's going to be teaching me? Who's going to be investing in my life? And, And so I made the decision, I'm going to choose the seminary based on the professors. And so I began to investigating the professors and looking at what they wrote and what they had come up with. And I would check out their reputation. I would talk to other students and uh, other people that had knew them and and would find out about them. I was actually offered a full scholarship, a presidential scholarship to another seminary, but I wasn't excited about the things that I was learning about those professors. And I was saying, yeah, it would really be easy to go there because it'd be free but I'm not sure I want them investing in my life. And so we wound up going to a school that we then had to pay for. And, and yet those men had a huge impact in my life. I mean, I, I asked God to lead me to certain ones to spend one-on-one time with. And, and I got to just sit at the feet of some of these men of faith and to be stretched in my thinking and my understanding of scripture. And it was great. It was amazing. And so I was so thankful that God had shown me the things I needed to see that would help me with that. The most nervous I got at seminary was uh, I was asking around. I said, okay, you know, choosing uh, a Greek and Hebrew professor was really important. And I wanted to choose a good one. And I needed to take a couple of years of Greek of just the learning of it, the basic of it, before I really got into it. And so I started asking, I said, who's the best uh, Greek professor to teach you the basic stuff? And they said, oh, Dr. Greitz, uh, Sharon Greitz, uh, she's, she is the best. You will thoroughly enjoy her. And I'm sitting there going, great, Sharon Greitz. I grew up with her. Um, we, we grew up from preschool all the way through high school. We went to the same schools together. We went to the same church. Her mother and my mother were best friends. This is lovely. <laughs> After elementary school, when el- elementary school was out each day, we'd walk to her grandmother's house and there, you know, the parents would pick us up. And so I decided, okay, if she's the best, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk it. And so I went to see her, and I said, hey, Sharon. She said, hey, Don, I heard you were coming to school here. Your mom told my mom, yeah, 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 you know, all that. And uh, I said, well, yeah. I said, you know, I understand you're the best Greek professor, so I've just got to ask you one question. She says, yeah, what's that? How good's your memory from our childhood? <laughs> and she just looked at me with a glint in her eye, and she said, oh, it's very good. <laughs> 
I said, so I'm a dead person if I take this class. He said, oh, no, I won't hold any grudges. I said, all right, you know, just remember I was a little kid. You know, I was a little kid, you, you know, that was a long time ago. And, uh, but anyway, it worked out great, but man, was I nervous about that. And plus, you don't want to do bad in the class, and her mom calls my mom, then my mom calls me and fusses at me for not doing well in class, even though I am a 32-year-old man with my own kids. It happens. So anyway, verse 4, so Elisha goes with them. And they arrive at the Jordan. They began cutting the trees, cutting down the trees. But one of them, one of the students, was cutting a tree. His axe head fell into the river. Now, here's the deal. If Elijah had been there, say, he would have said, oh, tough luck. Elisha was a little different. And so the student went to Elisha. He said, oh, sir, he cried. It was a borrowed axe. Now, when you and I read that, we're going, so what's the big deal? Just go down to the hardware store and get another axe. You can easily replace it for your friend. No, you got you to understand something. An iron axe head back then was extremely expensive. Iron was extremely expensive. And, and there, there's no way this seminary student would have had the money to own such a thing. He would have had to borrow it. And so now that he's lost it, he will be responsible for it, and it's going to be an, a huge financial burden on him. So here's the deal for you and me. Now, for us, we're going to go, well, that's such a small thing. Well, not to the person. So when you have your stuff in your life, Everybody else may think it's a small thing, but to you it's not. So guess what? To God, it's not a small thing. God cares about the small stuff in your life. That's why he says, pray about only the big stuff. No. Pray about everything. God cares about your little stuff because he cares about you. And he wants you to come to him about all that stuff. And, and so Elisha cared. He cared for his student. And he knew this was going to be a huge financial burden on him. And, and how, what a way to start ministry to have this huge debt on you that you may or may not ever be able to afford to pay back. God cares about your little stuff. And when you even think it's a small thing, it's tempting to not bother God about it. But God wants to be bothered about it. He wants you to talk to him about everything. So don't shy away from the little stuff with him. So Elijah, Elisha said, uh, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. Now you got to remember, you know, most you're probably thinking, well, couldn't he have just waded out into the water and picked it up? Well, you know, there are a lot of places in the Jordan River that's pretty deep. And it's a moving river. And I don't know how fast the current was at the time. We also know it's a very muddy river, so he could not have seen through the water. 
and chances are as soon as it hit the bottom, it sunk into the mud and the silt. And, and so it was gone for all practical purposes. But Elisha said, where did it go in? And he showed him, and, um, which that kind of teaches me something else. When you really need to deal with stuff in your life, you have to kind of go back to where the thing is, where the problem is. I mean, if you have a broken relationship with somebody and you want it to be made right, well, you got to go back to where that relationship was broken and make it right. So he had to go back where the problem was. And, and so Elisha uh, took a stick from a tree, cut a stick off from a tree or limb, and he threw it into the water. And a natural law was broken, was suspended. And that heavy iron axe became like a bobbing cork. And it swam to the top of the water. And I could imagine that uh, that student was just standing there with his mouth open and to the point that Elisha had to say, well, well grab it. <laughs> Don't just stand there letting flies fly in and out of your mouth. Go grab the thing. I mean, this was a miracle. See, sometimes God shows up in your life and you're like dumbfounded, like, well, how did that happen? Well, you asked for it. You prayed about it. And God showed up. So this is what was going on with this guy. God showed up in what seems like a small, insignificant thing and met a need. Elisha cared about his students. And he didn't want this student to carry this kind of debt. God cares about you. And he didn't want you to carry the debt of sin. He didn't even want you to carry the guilt of sin. Isn't that a good thing? So he says to you, go back to that sin and confess it. And I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. God cares about the little things. In fact, <clears throat> you know, you, you could almost see ourselves in this story. You know, an axe head is not really very usable unless it's, it's got an axe handle. Because to use an axe head just by itself would be, be very laborious and very difficult. But when it's got a handle, you can get some leverage going. You get some strength going. And you get some speed going. Man, it can really start cutting some things, especially when it's sharpened. When it's sharpened, it cuts a lot faster. You know, it's kind of like you guys that do chainsaws. And I'm, I'm sorry, some of you women do chainsaws. I know there's some women out there that do chainsaws. You know what it's like to try to use a chainsaw when the, dull, when the blades are dull and, and it takes forever to cut through. But man, when it's sharp, it'll just slice right through. And, and so that handle being gone, that, uh, that's why Elisha got a new handle for it. And um, they didn't have the kind of handles that you and I would be used to. So 
he put a handle on it, and maybe that's kind of the way it is with God, that he'll, he will take your broken life, your lost life, he will resurrect it, and he'll attach it to himself. And he becomes the handle that directs your life as to where it needs to go so it can be used the way it was meant to be used. And so when I allow God to be the handle in my life, he uses me the way I was meant to be used because he created me and he knows. 1 Peter 2, 24, talking about Jesus, it said, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Back when I was in college, I was a part of a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. It's called Crew today. You know, the first three letters are Crusade. And one of our students grew up at Gateway is uh, on staff for crew here at uh, South Carolina at the university. And, and, and you as a church support him, and we're part of his um, uh, ministry support. And it's amazing what they're doing, doing a great thing. But it was really important for me to be a part of Crusade when I went to college. I grew up in church, and I knew all the Sunday school answers, but, you know... It wasn't really real in my life at that point. And so I decided I need to really, I need to get this down right. And so I went to Campus Crusade. One of the first things they did was teach me uh, this thing called the four spiritual laws. They still use that. And so maybe some of you are familiar with that, but I've got them in your notes. We're just going to walk through that as we keep talking about our lesson today. Because just like there are physical laws that govern the universe, there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship with God. And when God gets involved, guess who's in charge of the natural physical laws? He is. And so the natural physical law was you throw an axe head, an iron axe head into the water. It's going to sink. But God suspended that in order to do a miracle. And the natural result of your sin is you're separated from God, but God did a miracle to fix that. So the first law is this, that God loves you and he offers a wonderful plan for your life. He's got a purpose, he's got a plan, and he absolutely loves you. In fact, you could say he adores you. He He's your father. He's your creator. He, he loves you. He loves you and me with the kind of love we can't even begin to comprehend. Jesus put it this way. and He said, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So he loves you that much that he would sacrifice the most important relationship to him, and that was his son. And then Jesus also said later in chapter 10 of the book of John, he said, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. 
So God wants you to have a satisfying life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life. He wants that for you. So the question then is, well, why am I not experiencing that? Why am I not experiencing this wonderful plan? Why, why am I not satisfied? Why am I always looking for something else and, and I'm always dissatisfied with, with things in my life? Well, law number two tells us why, the spiritual law. Because we're sinful, that's why. And because we're sinful, we're separated from God. Therefore, we cannot know, we cannot experience God's love, God's plan, God's purpose for us. It's that simple. That's a spiritual law. You cannot break that spiritual law. You cannot break natural, physical laws. You know, you can tell me all day long you don't believe in gravity, and I'll show you the ladder that'll get you to the roof of this building, and then I want to watch you jump off. Because I'm going to be ready with my iPhone watching you float around because you don't believe in gravity. That's not going to work for you. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. You can't break that natural law. You can't break the spiritual law. And the spiritual law is... God's holy and you're not. In fact, Romans 3.23 puts it this way, for everyone has sinned, every one of us, no exemptions. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. None of us have met the standard. And it's one of those standards that if you miss it by an inch, you've missed it by a mile. It doesn't matter. It's one of those tests that the only satisfactory pass grade is 100 if you make a 99.9, you fail. It's one of those kind of tests. Because God says, you got to be perfect. And I don't grade on the curve. We all failed that one. So now, here's the deal. I'm created to have fellowship with God. You're created to have fellowship with him. But because of my stubborn self-will, I didn't have a relationship with him. And because of your stubborn self-will, you don't have a relationship with him. And we want to do our thing, our way. We want to be independent. And therefore, fellowship with God is broken. This self-will, you know, it can be an active rebellion against God, but sometimes it's just a passive indifference. Oh, I'm, I'm not mad at God. I'm just, I'm not going to pay any attention to him. That's just being passive and you're indifferent I don't care whether he loves me or not. And, or you can be actively rebellion against, rebellious, rebellious against him and, and you're just mad at him. Regardless, the Bible says that's sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin. So wages is something that you earn, you're, you're paid. Uh, it doesn't say the price of sin, it says the wages. So it says the wages for sin, what you earn for your sin is death. So let me put it in other words. I earned the right to go to hell. I earned that. That was the wages I earned 
the pay I earned because of my sin. The same thing's true for you. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift, that's the opposite of that, meaning I can't earn it, it's free, it's a gift, it's from God. The free gift of God is eternal life. But that's not the end of the sentence. It says eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So God is holy and you and I are not. In fact, the Bible tells us there's a great gulf between you and God. We learned that with the story of the rich guy and the poor guy named Lazarus. They both died. Rich guy went to hell. Lazarus went to heaven. And the rich guy saw Lazarus in heaven and he called out to Abraham. He said, I'm just burning up here. I'm dying of thirst. I, I need some water. You know, bring some water to me. And Abraham said, even if I wanted to, I cannot. There's a great divide between us, a great gulf. <clears throat> I cannot go there and you cannot come here. And see, that's what sin did between you and God. And you cannot cross. Oh, people try to cross it. Uh, some people try to cross it by being religious. You know, they, they go to church, they do their church thing, and, and they check that off their list. Okay, I've done church, so God should be okay with me. Or maybe they do it by being good. I, you know, I do nice things for people. I'll buy strangers uh, their meal. Uh, I'll, I'll give things away. I'm a nice person. Therefore, maybe God will give me a pass. Or maybe it's through philosophy. You think you can argue your way into heaven or think your way into heaven through intellect. It, it just doesn't work. They all fail. And that's why the third law explains there's really only one way to gulf that bridge. There's only one way, and that explains it. The third way is Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Only provision. There's no back door. There's no other way. There's no footnote showing you a secret passage. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Through him, you and I can know and experience God's love, God's plan, God's purpose for our lives through Jesus and him alone. You see, the reason that happens is because Jesus died in our place. Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Isn't that amazing? While, you're, while you were still sinning, Jesus died for you. While those soldiers were killing him, he prayed for their forgiveness while they were doing it. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And then Jesus, after he died and was buried, he rose from the dead. The Bible says that um, he was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day. He was seen by Peter, then he was seen by 12 other the 12 disciples. After that, he was seen by more than 500 disciples at one time. Wow. He rose from the dead. And the eyewitness accounts to that is sufficient for me to know that it's a true event. One of the top lawyers in the history of our country 
Simon Greenleaf, who actually wrote the book on what is considered credible evidence for a court of law, was not a believer and he was challenged by his law students where he taught at Harvard to examine the resurrection of Jesus and apply the rules of evidence concerning that. And so he did, and in the process, he came to the conclusion that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus was so overwhelming that it would pass any court of law test, and he personally prayed to receive Jesus because of that evidence. So that one of the best legal minds in the history of our country said the evidence is overwhelming. And then the third thing about Jesus is that he is the only way to God. Jesus said that. He said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, period. No footnote, no exceptions. But you know, it's not enough to just know those three things. You can intellectually say, I believe Jesus lived. I believe Jesus died on a cross. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he's the son of God. You can say all that intellectually and still die and go to hell. Because of this last truth, you and I must individually, individually, Receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then and only then can we experience God's love and God's plan and God's purpose for our lives. So John 1.10 or 1.12 puts it this way. But to all who believe him and accept him, he gave them the right to become children of God. So I must receive Jesus. In fact, it says, I must receive him through faith. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things that you have done. So none of, of us can boast about it. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Long time ago, there was a guy in the church, and um, somebody was saved in the service, and he's just one of these guys that always wanted to argue theological points. So he came up to me, he said, I, "I've got a question for you." I said, "All right, bring it on." He said, "That person that became a believer today, were they saved when they were sitting back in their chair, or were they saved when they were walking down the aisle?" Or did they have to come and stand in front of you and hold your, hold your hand and pray with you? Or was that when they were saved? And I looked at him with a lot of compassion and just said, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you that that's the way you want to think? And I was just reminded of this verse. No, you're saved when you believed. The moment you chose to believe, it's not by saying magical words. You can't just say a magical prayer and that saves you. It's when you believed. That's when you're saved. And we receive Christ 
through a personal invitation. Jesus put it this way. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And I will sh- we will share a meal together as friends. Back in 18, the 1850s, a guy named William Holman Hunt. Uh, I got to see this painting in England. He painted this painting called The Light of the World. And uh, I don't know if we can get the, there it is. Uh, now, you have seen a lot of variations of this. A lot of different uh, uh, painters have, or artists have painted this in a lot of different ways. But this is the original. This is the very first one. And it was painted by this artist named Hunt back in 1849, and he finished it in 1853. Fifty years after he painted it, at the turn of the century, he felt like he needed to explain something about the painting. And here's what he said. I painted the picture with what I thought, unworthy though I was, to be by divine command and not simply a good subject. He felt God himself told him to paint this picture to represent this verse. I stand at the door and knock. And uh, let's put the picture back up, if you would. So in this painting, you'll see Jesus is the light of the world. He's holding the light, and he is the light. The picture's dark. It was meant to be. Uh, and because the, the world is dark, and Jesus is the only light. So the only light is Jesus, and he's knocking on a door, and you, you see two windows in the door, and there's light coming in there. there. You know, there's somebody inside, and that's you. But you also see at the door, there's a lot of growth that's starting to happen at the door. You know, vines, weeds are growing up on it. Uh, you see, this door represents your life, your heart. And, and some of you... you you've allowed your heart to grow very cold and, and maybe callous towards God and, and, uh, <clears throat> or you've been wounded so many times, hurt so many times by people or even the church that you, you just, you're just not going to be vulnerable anymore. And so regardless of where you've been, what has happened to you, Jesus is standing there knocking. And, and one last little tidbit about this door. There's no handle. On the outside. The handle's only on the inside. Now, could Jesus force the door down? Well, of course he could, but he's not going to. He's never going to force you to choose him. It's your choice. He's asking to come into your life. He's asking to come in and solve your sin problem. He's asking to let you give him eternal, to let him give you eternal life. He's asking that. And so he's knocking at the door. But here's a sad truth. One day he may stop knocking. And, you, and, and the day you die, if you've not asked Christ in your life, he's definitely not knocking anymore. So, 
are you ready? If there's someone here today that's ready to, you've heard these four spiritual truths, are you ready to choose to believe and open the door and let Jesus do what he promised to do? He said, I will come in and I'll live with you. I will be not just part of your life, I'll be your life. You're not welcoming him in as a guest. You're welcoming him in as Lord. So I'm, I'm going to pray with you. And I just believe there may be one or two of you that need to pray this prayer with me. So let's bow our heads. and Let's pray for a moment.